0: You are in danger today. You all sitting here right now are in danger. There is trouble lurking in the hidden crevices of your life, a a danger that threatens to overtake you and bring your life to complete ruin. This danger cannot be seen, so don't be fooled, because it is there and it's deadly. And this danger manifests itself in different ways for different people. For some of you here this morning, this danger... Appears as boredom with the things of Christianity. You've grown weary of the seemingly repetitive nature of the Christian life. You're bored. You're tired of going to church again. You're tired of praying. You're tired of singing. You're tired of the sermon. You want something new, something exciting, and so you're going to begin looking somewhere else. For others, it takes a different form. You've grown tired of grace. You might talk about grace a whole lot but it doesn't affect your speech or your actions. Your heart truly isn't wowed anymore with the impossibility of grace. You, you live an austere Christian life, the, the rules, the, the box to fit in. You, you're interested in the serious Christian life, the cut and dry, the black and white because you're a serious Christian. You've developed a personal holiness code that you live up to, a standard to judge your life by. And now you expect others to live that way too. You feel safe, but you're in danger. Still, others, having put your trust in Christ at one point in your life, have slowly and quietly walked away and now placing your trust in something else altogether. You trust in your health, your wealth, your career, your family. You too are in danger. What is this danger? After having submitted our lives to the king, living for him and rejoicing him, we have grown tired or impatient or callous to the king and the danger is forgetting the gospel. Darkness can very easily and subtly overwhelm our life. A darkness of busyness and forgetfulness. A darkness of pain and suffering. A darkness of disillusionment and fear. And this Awareness of darkness brings us to the first week of Advent. It interrupts our lives, and I'm thankful for that. The darkness of sin and abandonment is jarring. It's awkward, though I'll recognize, for the first Sunday of Advent to land right after Thanksgiving weekend. I mean, everyone is hungover on turkey and shopping and football, and here we are, Advent Sunday, the first one, taking us by surprise which is really like the first advent, isn't it? Jesus came in the dark of night, not in the morning, not with the spotlight on him. He came to earth in an ordinary way. Nothing spectacular from the human standpoint. Grace came when we were distracted and unsettled. Grace came when sin looked like it would rule the day. Grace comes when you need it, not always when you're prepared for it not even when you're looking for it or asking for it. Grace comes right when you need it. Grace interrupts life and surprises us, just like this first Sunday of December. It's abrupt to our schedule, and I'm thankful for that. i realized this morning that some of you might come from opposite ends of the spectrum concerning Christmas. And just so we're clear, the Bible states nowhere that Jesus was born on December 25th. Nowhere. That came from somewhere outside of Scripture, and as a culture, we've continued to celebrate this day of remembering Jesus' birth. We're under no obligation to celebrate Christmas on December 25th, or to even celebrate Christmas at all. It's not a sin to celebrate Christmas, and it's not a sin to not celebrate Christmas, The Lord has left our consciences free from the commandments of men and from anything contrary or beside to the word of God, what it says. But as a church, we believe it's healthy to remember Jesus Christ's birth. And we're going to do so in our worship services, to pause and remember the central mysteries of the Christian faith, the incarnation of God in the man Christ Jesus. Because the scriptures talk a lot about Jesus' birth. So it's good to talk about it. It's, it's good to preach about it. It's good to sing about it. Not only in December, but throughout the whole year. And that's probably where we're not balanced enough. There are plenty of Christmas songs and hymns that we should be part of our regular worship. We should probably sing Angels We Have Heard on High in July. And maybe we will. We need to be careful, friends, if you land on the other spectrum to say that we should never celebrate Christmas or even Easter at that point. Although you have the freedom to not celebrate, I think it's needlessly narrow because these recognized holidays in our culture give us a window to speak the truth of God's word to a dying world. Christmas gives you a great opportunity to not only remember, but to witness to your neighbors of what you believe to be true of Christmas, and Christ in particular. You don't have to buy a Christmas tree for your house But you should look to talk about Jesus during Christmas, especially with the neighbors that put up St. Nick as a lawn ornament. Bring up the conversation. Talk to them about their need of Christ. And so as a church, we're gonna take advantage of these big old softballs that the culture tosses to us. And we're gonna swing for the fence. We're gonna remember Christ's birth at Christmas. We're gonna talk much about Jesus and his coming to earth. We're going to have a Christmas program as already mentioned with choirs who have been working hard to sing of the glories of God for the encouragement of the believer and to the witness to the unbeliever. For some reason in our culture people are still inclined to come to church on Christmas when they're not otherwise come during a normal Sunday. And I believe this is an opportunity to take and press home the claims of Christ to make known the wonders of the cross. So this is where we're gonna go for the next four weeks. There is wonder in Christmas during darkness. There, Because when we read the story of inc- incarnation, we're in awe of God coming to earth to save people who are in danger. The Savior coming to earth, the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem his children. And we're gonna to go to the Old Testament to see the prophecy of a child to be born of a virgin, Jesus Christ. And so, if you haven't already, I'm gonna ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter nine. And we're gonna just I'm gonna read verses one through seven this morning. We're gonna primarily focus on verse six in the next four weeks. If you're using a Bible that's provided, it's on page 536. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter nine and follow with me as I read. Verse one, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, In a later time, he was made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. We praise God for his word. And I'm gonna pray now. Would you join with me? Father, we thank you for this first Sunday of Advent. We thank you that we can gather together this morning to worship you and we ask God that you would Teach your people, as we look at your word, may you be honored and glorified as we do this gathered time of worship and the preaching of your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. First thing I wanna do is kind of give you some context of this passage, and it won't be in greater detail. hope to do that in the next three weeks, even expanding more on the details of this account, but I hope it paints a picture, at least, of what's happening. And and in your Bibles, if you can just go back just to the end of chapter 8, of Isaiah 9, Isaiah pronounces some rather troubling predictions coming for the people of God. If you look at verse 22, you can see how dire the situation is. It says, "As they look to the earth, will behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness." This is a not. This is not a happy picture. Distress, darkness, gloom. This is. This isn't pleasant. And why? Well, it was God's judgment on His people for the refusal to submit their lives to Him full-blown apostasy. They had walked away from God. And what a waste to consider these people whom God had called out, given a hope and a future, and they walk away from God. They, they call God a, a fraud, a, a chump with their lives. They wouldn't submit to him, and so they're thrusted into darkness and despair simply because they wanted to live their own lives their own way. And yet God simply refuses to, to let go of his people. He will rescue them even if it takes years to do so. And then chapter nine opens and the sun begins to come up to shine on them. There's hope that's given. You see it there in chapter nine, verse two. Instead of darkness, there'll be a great light. Instead of gloom, joy will come in verse three. Joy. They needed joy. If you've ever been in constant darkness, deep despair, you understand the need for joy. Joy. Freedom instead of oppression will come as a rod of his oppressor will be broken. Peace is coming. War will be over. Freedom for all that are captive. It's, It's a dawn of hope for God's people. And the text doesn't merely describe what will happen, but it praises the person doing it. And this is a second person singular verb form and in the verses three and four, it says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its gladness. You have shattered yoke, rod, and staff. This you here is simply Yahweh, it's God. And he's informing what the conditions will be like under Messiah's reign. He is informing and he's praising. And it's simple yet profound. And scripture doesn't merely want us to understand what it says, but to, to pull praise out of us for what it says. And hope is coming for God's people. And how will it come? Through a baby. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 4, quotes these verses, fulfilled with the birth of Mary's boy, the child laid in a manger in Bethlehem, with the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the child whose birth is a pivot point for all of those who are living in darkness to see a great light for those who live in anguish to now be full of joy, for those in bondage to finally be set free. You see, friends, but how could we not remember Christmas and these this wonderful news of a savior that's come? And how, how would it be a child that would bring about this great reversal of life? And what is it about this child that makes all the difference, that, that makes him the turning point for every human life that trusts in him? Well, that's the point of these four names that we're going to look at in Isaiah 6, because these, these four names will answer that question, what makes this child so special, so significant? And so that's what we're going to do in the next four weeks. But I, I want to pause just again, because I was just overwhelmed with this all week. And consider the magnitude of this thought, a child is born. God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child God's way through darkness and lostness and fear and anxiety and hopelessness is a child, a baby. The power of God, so far superior to the Assyrians and all the might in this world, can be defeated with a child. And that, shock, that thought of, of a child should just bake your noodle this morning. It should confound you. A child is given... It's amazing, it's astounding that God would choose to come as a baby to rock the world, to rock history. This is no ordinary baby. This is God come in human flesh to save us from our sins. And why are there four names given? Well, when a king ascended to the throne, they were given additional names. Throne names, you might call them. They function as a description for the reign of the king that he would have. They describe his rule, his mission, and that's what we find here in Isaiah 9. They, They tell us why Jesus has come and who he is and what he's come to do. And they tell us again why Christmas is really worth celebrating. Each one of these names in Isaiah 9 has two parts, and so that's really how I'm going to outline hopefully all these messages. Real simple outline. So this is the last two points of the sermon is breaking up this first name it's given, Wonderful Counselor. First is wonderful. We tend to use this word wonderful a lot during this time of year, right? It's a wonderful life, fa- uh, favorite Christmas movie or songs playing at the mall, the most wonderful time of the year. But but the way in which we use the word wonderful and the way the Bible uses it doesn't line up. It's unfortunate translation because usually the word... Um, For wonderful in our world is something emotional or or uh, subjective. Everything is wonderful. Those gifts are wonderful. The food is wonderful. I'm feeling wonderful. Or or things might cause wonder. The Christmas lights cause wonder. And so we can tend to read it in that way. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying Jesus is a a kind of a, a wonderful counselor. Just pleasant. That's not what he's saying. I mean, in one way it's true, but it stops short. It doesn't give the full meaning. In the Old Testament, this word means something more like miraculous or supernatural. In Genesis 18, we read of a 90-year-old post-menopausal Sarah, and she would really give birth, and God says, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too difficult, too hard, or really in effect? Is anything too supernatural for God? God. Or in Judges 13, 18, there's another use of the word wonderful. When the angel of the Lord meets, uh, meets the, the prophet, and asks his name. And the angel replies, why do you ask my name, seeing it is as wonderful? He's, he's saying that it's so far above our natural capacity to comprehend. There's something supernatural, transcendent about him. And this fits well of what we know of Jesus, doesn't it? He was a man, but his birth wasn't natural or normal. Born of a virgin, filled with the Spirit without measure. Jesus' life wasn't normal either. Speaking to calm the sea, help healing the blind, multiplying food with his prayers, raising people to life. There was nothing normal about Jesus' life. Jesus was completely supernatural. And I find this compelling as we read the scriptures. And as you read the Old Testament, you begin to think that way in which you're going to defeat the powers of darkness and sin is with power and bigness and strength. And here is Isaiah saying he's coming, and he's coming as a baby. See, God's answer to the bullies swaggering their way through history is not to become a bigger bully, but to become a child. It's amazing. Have you forgot about that this last year? Have you grown grown comfortable with the thought that God's answer to the power of darkness simply the birth of a child. It's unthinkable. It's astounding. It's wonderfully supernatural. The ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy in chapter 7 is a baby. Astounding. It's truly wonderful that God would choose to come as a baby. He is our God in the flesh, Emmanuel. One commentator states it well, the Old Testament usage of the word Wonderful compels us to the conclusion that it here designates the Messiah not merely as someone extraordinary, but as one who is in in his very person and being is a wonder. He is that which surpasses human thought and power. He is God himself. He isn't wonderful in the sense that he's special or inspiring. It isn't even that he causes wonder, although he does. It's that he is exalted. He is sovereign. He is supernatural. He is miraculous. It's, it's like when David says in Psalm 139 6 about the knowledge of the Lord such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's utterly beyond him. Whereas David says it's too high for him to reach. There's nothing dull, there's nothing boring about Jesus Christ. This wonderful one is who will take his people out of darkness into the marvelous light. No ordinary child, no simple man could ever accomplish this amazing transformation of God's people. The God-man, Christ Jesus, who came as a light for the world, the great I am, Jesus, the word, who was with God and who was God. He, only he, can take us in our darkness and shine the light. Only him who can meet us in our pain and our sorrows and who will wipe away all the tears from our eyes. It is only him who comes to us in our brokenness and our bondage to sin and sets us truly free. And he gives light and joy and freedom and peace and he does it freely to his people. He is the great wonder. He is truly wonderful. He isn't just wonderful though, he's a wonderful counselor. My last point here, Jesus is called the wonderful counselor And that doesn't mean that he's a really good therapist. It's not what it's meant by counselor here. This name is given to a king. He is a king, and that's the point. And earthly kings always have earthly counselors, don't they? They're there to give guidance and advice, wisdom for critical decisions that need to be made because when they make decisions, it affects more than themselves. And this king who is able to see and discern accurately the right path to take at any time a king needs counselors, and, and he's saying this counselor doesn't need those counselors. He is the wonderful counselor. He's the opposite of the, the bungling king, Ahaz, during this time when Isaiah writes this. See, Solomon is, you remember king, king David's son, he was renowned for God-given wisdom, but the king who reigned, the descendant of Solomon, the, the king who reigned when Isaiah spoke when this was written was King Ahaz, and his wisdom was a different character altogether. Ralph Davis says that Ahaz was worldly, wise, and bungling. Street smart, but in the end, incompetent and clumsy. So on the one end, you have Solomon, the the, the display of a wise king, and on the other, Ahaz, the, the display of a foolish ruler. And here's the point. Earthly rulers are sometimes wise and sometimes foolish. Their insights are sometimes penetrating, sometimes, though, they're tragically off the mark. Sometimes they're, they're driven by self-interest or, or lust for power. Sometimes their lofty ideals for the good of their people are compromised by their personal uh, fallacies. And he's saying this Jesus, this child who is to be born, Jesus is not like any of them. He's rather a king who needs no counselors, whose wisdom is not liable to compromise. He makes no foolish decisions. He is a supernatural counselor. Remember, the world was plunged into death and ruin by a counselor who came in the garden. The serpent slithered his way into the lives of Adam and Eve and counseled them tragically. Charles Spurgeon said it was by a counselor that this world was ruined. Did not Satan mask himself in the serpent and counsel the woman with exceeding craftiness that she should take? Under herself of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, in the hope that thereby she should be as God? Was it not that evil counsel which provoked our mother to rebel against her maker and did not, as the effect of sin, bring death in this world with all of its train of woe? And the world today desires more of these same counselors, more wisdom from fallen sources, God doesn't take counsel from anyone on earth. He doesn't need any help. Maybe you need to hear that today. God doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my wisdom. God is everlastingly satisfied with himself and knows nothing about doubting his purpose. And we have no clue what that's like as humans. We take weeks, months to decide the next course of action. Unsure if we're choosing correctly, weighing all the nuances. We have to research, we have to study, we have to wait and see and choose our next steps carefully. But God does nothing of the sort. God's decisions are like flashes of lightning. There's no doubting, no wondering, no mistakes. They are completely wise with no uncertainty and have been eternally perfect in consideration. This is the God to which we should put all of our trust in. Doesn't he sound trustworthy? This God who needs no counsel, who needs no wisdom, we are to trust him with all of our lives. And we live in a time where many people find it hard to trust in leaders. Cynicism abounds. Uncertainty about our future is commonplace. And failed leadership is so regular. And Isaiah is reminding us this morning not to place our deepest hopes on mere men whose best efforts are flawed, He's not asking you to trust in the king Ahaz of our world, at least not ultimate trust and confidence that should be placed on God. The psalmist says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And this is what Isaiah is telling us this morning as well. Trust in the wonderful counselor, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our wonderful counselor is not endowed as mere humans are with wisdom and understanding He knows all things. So unlike every other earthly ruler, he he will not judge by merely what he sees or hears. Gossip will not sway our God. He doesn't respond to first impressions, God doesn't receive new evidence. Rather, in chapter 11, Isaiah says, he will, with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. See, God is drawing from a well that's all too different than ours. Colossians says, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can trust this counselor, Who draws his perfect wisdom and knowledge from himself. He isn't flawed. He doesn't mess up. God won't steer you wrong. And you can trust this king because he makes no mistakes. He never second guesses himself. It's really unfathomable to consider the wisdom of our God how strange it it seems for us to consider our lives in comparison to God's providence. So we pause and think back and to consider, we look at our life and we see the zigzag. And it's going this way or that way and it seemingly goes backwards and forwards and our our lives, when we look back, seem like a journey through a dark fog and a mountain with, with the switchbacks, back and forth. But you see, friends, God doesn't see it that way. He is so far above us. To him, our lives are straight lines. God's way is a direct line. There are no curves. There are no missteps. It is not a maze. He he always goes directly towards his objective and nothing can stop him. Nothing gets in the way of God. He really is a wonder, isn't he? His word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our paths. He has gone ahead of you through the valley of the shadow of death and he made it safely on the other side. And you can trust him, friends. He is a great and wonderful counselor because he's fully man and truly God and he knows our frame He remembers that we are but dust. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, except he never sinned. Jesus knows you, friend. He knows you, not just by virtue of his omniscience, of deity, of being God, but also his humanity, the empathy. He knows you because he was like you. And you and I need to marvel at this God. God. Exodus 15 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Who is like our God? We should be filled with amazement, friends. We should be astonished. We should be in awe of our God. The people of Isaiah's day were plunged into darkness, pain and anguish. Jesus, too, was thrust into the darkness and despair and forsakenness as the Father turned away from him as he bore our sins on him, on that wretched tree. He has plumbed the depths of sorrow. He knows all about loss and abandonment. He bore our sin on himself. He had no sin of his own. It was ours. He suffered wrath and condemnation. He was cut off and disowned. Jesus knows, friends, what it feels like to be abandoned. So when it says these are wonderful counselor, it's him who hears with understanding when no one else understands. He loves without reserve when everyone else in your life holds back. He is faithful and he endures with you when all other trusts fall away. He gives grace to pardon and to cleanse and to comfort. He is a wonderful counselor, a sufficient savior, and he is all you need, friends. I wonder today what has been rolling around your heart and mind this week. How many of you came in here this morning utterly defeated? You are wiped out by life, exhausted, tired, and discouraged. Where are you placing your joy and your hope this morning, friends? If it's anywhere other than our wonderful counselor, then you will continue. In that path, Jesus is worthy of our trust for all of our life. In every disappointment, in every trial, in every situation where we know not what to do, we can trust him. You and I need to trust in Jesus, friends. One old Puritan used to say, he that carves for himself will cut his fingers. Leave God to carve for you in providence and all shall be well. Seek seek God's guidance and nothing can go amiss. Trust in Jesus, friends. Leave it in his hands alone this morning. He has the best ideas. He has the best strategies. So we need to trust and follow him. I also wonder who has come into our midst this morning and have heard the gospel of Jesus for the first time. You have seen a great light. Your eyes have been awakened to see Jesus for the first time. And you're beginning to taste of the true, lasting joy, discovering real freedom. It can only be found in one person. And this person is nowhere on earth. You can't find it in a human. You will only find it in the Son of God who was given one child who was born over 2,000 years ago in a manger. you only find peace for your soul in this wonderful counselor. You find it in Jesus Christ. And friend, you need to look at him. You need to cast your gaze on him. You need to turn to him and cry to him. You need to stop living your life with best guesses and human wisdom. There is a wonderful counselor who can guide all of your steps who will keep you to the end. You can trust Jesus today. He is the king of all kings. And I implore you to turn from your sins of trusting in yourself and trust in Christ alone. He is truly worth your devotion for all of your life. This morning we're going to Remember Christ's sacrifice. So as the men come forward right now to serve in this communion service, this is a, a way for us to remember that Jesus came to die as a sacrifice for our sins. This is a way for us to see the word as we partake of the Lord's Supper. This is one of the ordinances of the church. It's the duty of the Christian. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then I would strongly encourage you to not partake of this meal. This is only for Christians. So I encourage you to observe as we worship together and and find myself or another elder this morning. We'd love to talk with you. And Christians that are here this morning, you do not partake of this meal as a perfect Christian. You and I have sinned this week, either in deed or word and mind. And as we pass out the bread and juice, I encourage you to spend time considering your sin and confessing it to God. He is faithful and just to forgive your sins. And I'll pray, and then we'll hand out the bread. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to die on our behalf. His broken body for us causes us to remember. His life on the cross was sufficient to pay for our sins. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for sending him on our behalf. Amen.